Welcome, welcome, welcome to Above Replacement Radio. I am your host, Chris Gianta. I might be becoming a bad baseball fan who can't enjoy the romantic things because of advanced statistics. 15 years from now, I want to be on the early baseball committee. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Kern. I literally have the fan graphs hoodie, the baseball reference t-shirt, just repping some stats, you know what I'm saying? It's not necessarily Hall of Fame. It's not necessarily above average, but we can guarantee you we are better than just the standard replacement level college sophomore. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio, we're talking baseball. Kind of whenever I'm your host, Christiana, over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? You know, Chris, this would normally be the part of the show where I say that I'm doing well and that we got some fun baseball to talk about, like I have for, you know, 270-something episodes in a row. Uh, but you know, I'm not doing well today. It's been a rough, roughly 24 hours, maybe 23 or so hours since... We learned the big news that we'll be getting into today. And, uh, you know, I I think we've been kind of waiting to hop on these mics for, for ever since now. Yeah, yeah. And it's been nice. It's been nice to have the the 24-hour period so you can kind of stew and, like, figure out what your thoughts are on the whole situation. Um, but, yeah, you know, yesterday for me, I was, you know, I was – driving around i was like you know what this is this is a great weather day it's been cloudy and muggy the for like what seems like the 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 entire last week um it's rained a lot you know i'm really excited that i get this nice sunny day to play with uh it's going to be a good day and then around 1 20 ish p.m some somewhere around there um uh there or maybe i think like 12 30 um I, I see text messages in in our in our group chat actually, which is where I found out. Um, and then I go immediately to Twitter because I figure something's wrong. And I see that uh, the Red Sox fired Heim Bloom, their president of baseball, or no, their uh, chief baseball chief, officer, chief baseball officer. Yeah. Um, basically, the acting GM, the guy who is you know allegedly calling all the shots. Um, they're is more nuanced to that, which we'll get into, but, uh, but yeah, they, they fired their, uh, chief baseball officer. He was hired in early 2020 slash late 2019. He has been around, he, his tenure lasted, uh, for the entirety of our show. Like we, we've, we've Pretty been much, yeah. above replacement radio has been around for the entire Heim bloom era, which is, so it really makes this, this, you know, story and this era unique to us, but, um, the, the history of his, of his reign, uh, is, is definitely, it's been talked about for a while. It's been discussed a lot by Red Sox fans, basically since pretty much since like, uh, the 2022 trade deadline, he's gotten a lot of criticism, um, from, from, you know, a lot of, a a lot of different people. I, I don't think in the, in Red Sox history, there has been, um such strong opinions on both sides of the spectrum in that you know him doing a good job and him doing a bad job there's never been such a split um i feel like the more mainstream red sox fans uh did not like what he was doing well you know it i think there's it's sort of a a minority that has liked what he's done but daniel and i are both in that minority um you know i i think you know just paying it paying a little more attention and focusing on the nuance between what ownership does and what, you know, the, the front office does uh, it, you know, it puts us in that, 
in that minority a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, Chris and I will be getting pretty deep into this today. And uh, as many people may know that are listening to this, or if you're learning for the first time, Chris and I were both, I would say, pretty pro Bloom throughout his tenure. We're definitely anti Bloom firing. Um, so that is the perspective that you're going to be getting here. And uh, I think we should just start with the Mookie Betts trade because, you know, that is fair or not, that is probably going to be a lot of his legacy to a lot of Red Sox fans. He's going to be known as the GM that we brought in for those bridge years when we traded Mookie Betts and blah, blah, blah. And I think most Red Sox fans, even a lot of Himes critics, understand Himes' actual role in that, which was he was following John Henry's orders, right? I mean, he was hired in to be the guy that traded Mookie Betts so that, uh, you know, they had a fall guy and whatever and whatever. But you know, Bloom was, and I think it's more clear to say now that he's out, he was brought in to trade Mookie Betts and then get blamed for it and then get fired for it. Uh, and that is now, you know, we've kind of seen that transpire now throughout the four years. Uh, the Red Sox reported, there were several reports in August of 2019, a month before Dave Dabrowski was fired, that the Red Sox were going to listen to offers on Mookie Betts that offseason. So... The idea that Heim came in and said, "Hey, we should trade Mookie Betts," completely false. I don't, and I don't think a lot of people think that. But we, I think, I need we we need as many people as possible to understand that the Mookie Betts trade was a an ownership uh, decision that Heim Bloom was brought in to execute, and that is what happened. John Henry was the one who did it. Tom Warner, Sam Kennedy, everyone in that front office, they were the ones that said we need to trade Mookie Betts and Bloom was brought in to be that guy. Yes, that's, that's exactly what happened. And uh, there was actually an athletic article that I was reading uh, yesterday that said there were talks at the 2019 trade deadline, which, which was crazy. I mean, I'm not sure it hasn't really been talked about that much, so I'm not sure what the sourcing is on that, but even if it was a slight talk, there was, something there because yeah there was obviously a, a little bit of a grift between uh where, where ownership thought they were at and where Mookie Betts thought they were at especially in those negotiations um it didn't seem like negotiations were going really great and that's uh, you know a lot of that can be blamed on ownership for sure um and uh and yeah like yeah he was brought in to get the Red Sox under the luxury tax like let, let's let's not forget that and that is not that is not something that uh chief baseball officers, presidents of baseball operations, nor general managers typically really care about. They want to, they want to put the best team out there. And usually that comes from spending money. It was, it was on ownership. The ownership wanted to get under the, uh, you know, CBT threshold so that they could spend less money and, you know, ultimately decided to decided that trading the best uh, franchise, best player in franchise and, best player in the franchise in at least the last 50 years um that was the best that was the best way to get under that cbt threshold so like it, it is frustrating <laughs> like there is that minority that says he you know it, he was the guy that traded that traded mookie bets that was that was far for far 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 from his decision and i think yeah. I, i'm glad that most people understand that as you mentioned most time critics still you know most, most time bloom critics still understand that yeah that's on ownership you can complain about the return but even in that scenario yeah like the 
everyone knew that the Red Sox wanted to get rid of rid of Mookie Betts. So they that took away a little bit of their leverage. And also they had to attach David Price to get under the luxury tax because of how high they were above that marker. So adding price to it also took away from the return. But yes, you you definitely have to start with the um with the Mookie Betts trade there. And along with that, I, I think a, a thing we have to discuss also is the I think Red, the Red Sox fan base is not used to having to blame ownership for stuff, especially considering, you know, since they took over, it it had been pretty smooth sailing from whenever they took over, like 02. 02, 03, yeah. It's 01 oh, maybe until 2018. From the early 2000s into, through 2019, it was pretty smooth sailing. They were always near the top of the payroll. They didn't really have anything like there was nothing to blame ownership on. So any front office activity, whether it be from the GM, Dan Duquette, Theo Epstein, Ben Sherrington, Dave Dombrowski, like it was under the approval of ownership and, you know, ownership was allowing all that to happen so that when ownership steps in and has something to say on the baseball activity, uh, people still blame the acting GM or the, or the chief baseball officer in this scenario, because they think, Oh, you know, ownership and the GM has had a great relationship or at least seem to have a great relationship for about 20 years now. But so when we're trading Mookie Betts and we're, you know, 11th and or 12th and opening day payroll, it must be on the GM because ownership has been pretty consistent, but you know, we'll, we'll get into why that's been sort of incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, just all of this goes back to the fact that there was some day in 2019 when John Henry decided that he no longer wanted to act as a big market owner. He was, he still is to this day, but he just decided that he wanted to uh, decide. He just decided he didn't have enough money to put the team in a position to win at the consistent rate that they were winning throughout the previous 20 ish years of his ownership. Right. They were just coming off of 2018, the year that they had won the most games in franchise history and the fourth world series. And they re-signed or they, you know, they extended Chris sale. They extended Xander Bogarts. They extended, they re-signed Nathan Avaldi. And that was it. That was like John Henry, just something for whatever reason, checked out after that day. And, you know, it came time to pay Mookie Betts, who, you know, the I would like to remind people that the only publication that has reported anything about the Mookie Betts contract negotiations, whether it be in 2016 and 2017 and any year, is the Boston Globe. And that is a publication that is owned and basically operated by John Henry. Uh, anything that people have said regarding whatever talks happened with Mookie Betts has only been John Henry's word, um, which means there is a certain narrative that is being pushed. That is a matter of fact. Um, it was reported that Mookie Betts was, you know, offered $300 million by the Red Sox. He turned it down and countered with $400 million. It was reported that Mookie Betts never wanted to stay in Boston, that he wanted to test the free agent market. Mookie Betts has come out and said the exact opposite time and time again. He said that he thought he was going to spend his career in Boston, that he wanted to spend the rest of his career in Boston. And John Henry pushed a narrative that was simply false. And I know that this is kind of backtracking away from Heim Bloom, but I need to provide the context as to why John Henry 
is the guy that should be to blame for the last four years and how everything has gone. Because let's be honest, you know, I mean, for as much as we've defended High and Bloom, Chris, the Red Sox haven't been a fun team to watch since 2019. That is an objective fact. You know, 2021 was an outlier. Like they were, you know, kind of felt like they were playing on house money that year and they almost, and they made a World Series run. But, you know, the fact of the matter is the Red Sox have not been the team that we grew up watching in the last five years. And it sucks. It hasn't been fun. But I need everyone to understand who John Henry is and who he's been over these last five years before we dive into everything else. Yeah. It's extremely necessary to talk about ownership because yeah, as you say, there, there is a large amount of blame to be, to be put on them. That's a, that's a lot put on um, Heim Bloom. And yeah, like uh, during the Bloom era, the Red Sox, I put out a tweet uh, earlier this morning, the Red Sox were 267 and 262 which isn't ideal for a fan base, especially, you know, a big market, a team that has consistently, you know, during this, during this ownership run, consistently been in the playoffs, consistently been actually winning world series. You know, they've won four um, in the last 20 years now Um, still, even, even despite, you know, not winning one since 2018, but uh, they've still won about one every five years, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, to understand what why Heim Bloom is getting a lot of blame and why you know he's been you know Sam Kennedy the Red Sox president slash CEO he was you know in a in a media scrum saying like this is this is not where we where we want to be at like where we are in the standings is not where we want to be at and it's kind of implying the blame is on Heim Bloom when yeah a lot of it can be uh blamed on John Henry and it starts it starts with the Mookie Betts trade and it's sort of continued since then. Yeah, so the thing that Jeff Passan mentioned in his tweet regarding the situation yesterday was that in the four years that the Red Sox have won the World Series, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, their payroll has been, like, top three at least, maybe top five at the absolute worst, if I'm remembering incorrectly, but they've had a top five payroll every single year. And payroll, like we mentioned, and how much, you know, is spent on a team in a year, that's an owner's decision so much more than it's a GM or president of baseball ops or chief baseball officer's decision. And like I said, this is what John Henry ordered Bloom to do. Uh, the thing that a lot of people have been saying, and it is true, is that Bloom was kind of set up to fail because John Henry expected so much out of him and was not going to accept anything less than perfection. Bloom was expected to replenish the Red Sox farm system, uh, stay under the luxury tax, and win consistently, which doing those three things all at the same time don't really happen. And also, not only did he expect to do those three things, but he wanted him to do them in not just the best division in baseball right now, but the most competitive division that we've ever seen. Like, all five AL East teams are going to finish possibly over 500 this year. That's not happened in a season ever. Uh, so, High Bloom was expected to perform you know, essentially a miracle, something that no GM in the history of Major League Baseball could do as far as I'm concerned. That is, win consistently, uh, spend not a lot of money or spend less money than ideally you would want to spend and replenish a farm system in that kind of competitive vision. That is an insane ask. And for what it's worth, Bloom actually has to a degree done all those things, right? Like he's 
you know, he brought the team to the ALCS in 2021. He's on pace to have them to potentially give them a winning season this year in a year where they were expected to lose 90 games. Like he's done. And he obviously the farm system is fantastic right now. We've mentioned the payroll being lower than it's been. And yeah, they're in an insane division. They would be like in first in the central right now or competing for the division in the AL central right now. Yeah, they would be. Yeah, I think they'd be like three or four games back of the twins. And that doesn't even factor like they'd have an easier schedule if they were in the central. They'd probably be. Yeah, they'd probably be winning the central. They're probably a better team than the twins, realistically. Um, But yeah, that leads into uh, a couple of points that that I definitely have regarding the situation. Um, And the first starts with the fact that most championship teams in general have a little bit of fallout after or or they they have a period of fallout after their competitive window um we saw that sort of with the phillies like they won in 2008 that was the start of their like playoff reign uh, made the playoffs every year from 08 to 2011 and then sort of had like a fallout because when you go full go you trade some prospects you um you spend a lot of money the owner sort of a lot of the times gets tired of spending all that money. And then there's a little bit of fallout. Phillies didn't make the playoffs for uh, about a decade after, which isn't the goal, but you know, it happened. Oh nine, the Oh nine Yankees, they really went in for that Oh nine season with signing Sabathia and Teixeira. Those contracts didn't look good in the, in the last half of those deals. And they also, you know, probably traded some guys, traded some prospects. And from 2013 to 2016, they had they had their fallout like they were they were not the Yankees that they had been they had been come to known uh, they were kind of an average team from 13 to 16 2015 Royals you know they haven't been to the playoffs since 2016 Cubs they haven't won a you know they haven't won a playoff game since 2017 uh, which is not not ideal for them but they had a bit of fallout and so yeah that leads into the 2018 the Red Sox as well. Yeah. Uh yeah, na- yeah, Nationals are a great example. They went full go uh for a while. Um you know, sacrificed some prospects, sacrifice you know, sacrificed a lot of money and you know, spent big on some guys that you know are, you know, now heading into their mid to late 30s um or at some point were heading into their late 30s. So yeah, like there's a bit of fallout with the Nationals. Nationals have been rebuilding for a couple years now. So that leads into the 2018 Red Sox. They went more full go than many, many organizations have uh, from about 2016 to 2018. Uh, heading into 2016, they had one of the best farm systems in baseball, along with great developing young talent uh, that was already at the major league level, most notably Mookie Betts, obviously. Also, Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, they had Andrew Benintendi coming up, Yoan Mankata and and uh, Michael Kopech were both very highly ranked. Um, and then in that 2016 to 2018 window, they spent a crazy amount of money, which we loved. You know, by the way, this is no shame on the Dave Dombrowski era. It was a good era, um, but this is what it was. He traded a bunch of a bunch of top prospects, including Moncada, Kopech, um, even Anderson Espinosa, who was a top 100 prospect for uh, for Drew Pomeranz. Yeah, he was 19 um, at the time. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was ranked extremely, extremely highly. Uh, And in the end, they get a World Series out of it in 2018, which is fantastic. That's what you want when you go full go like the Red Sox did 
from 2016 basically to 2019 because they also you know had their share of deals in 2019 with the extensions of sale bogarts and the signing of evaldi but naturally you know they went full go they depleted their farm system and there's going to be a little bit of fallout after and that's what leads into the situation that Bloom came into uh they were very far above the the luxury tax which i guess john henry was tired of paying and then along with that they had they had just come off an 84 win season it was a disappointing year uh they were kind of you know their bullpen was a disaster their starting pitching wasn't great they had a, they had a great offense largely you know propped up by mookie betts but john henry was like we need to get rid of mookie betts i know he's our best player uh best franchise player uh, in the last at least 50 years you know you could argue he's even better than carly stremsky he you could argue that Betts is the best since ted williams which would be it would be best franchise player in 60 years so so you know i'm you know we have this 84 win team we like you know you usually want to improve on this team to you know there there are a couple pieces away from making the playoffs but we want you to trade mookie Betts. And also, by the way, we have the worst farm system in baseball. So we don't really have any future pieces coming up. Uh, so I, maybe this bets trade will help out, but we also have to attach price to get under this luxury tax. So it kind of, you know, we're not going to get a crazy amount out of this, most likely. Uh, so there is that. And then also the 2020 season was a disaster for a variety of reasons. Chris Sale had to get Tommy John like, hey, our highest paid pitcher. He's also getting a, he's getting Tommy John. Um, he's going to be out until the end of, you know, near the end of 2021. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, our second best pitcher, he's going to get myocarditis for the 2020 season. And uh, also Alex Cora, our manager. Yeah, he was, he's been suspended for the entire 2020 season. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll be able to get him back in 2021. So, you know, you could pin that. It is funny to mention like, oh, three last place finishes in four years. Yeah. None of none of what happened in 2020 was Heim Bloom's fault. Um, which also, is also uh, it was like also it was like the chillest last place season ever because all we had to do was watch them go 24 and 36. Yes, yes, and then get the highest ranked prospect, um, consensus highest ranked prospect in the next mm-hmm. year's draft, which is you know that was that was pretty solid. So yeah, Bloom was brought into an absolutely horrible situation, as horrible as a, a, a as horrible a situation you can be in. Uh, two years after a World Series. And yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we could get into the job he did uh, eventually, but that that that's providing context into the situation he's been brought into. Right. So I think the next point that I want to I want to shift into is kind of just talking about uh, what I believe is, you know, what what people think was Heim's biggest downfall. Uh, and I believe that pretty much any criticism that is mainstream about Heim Bloom can be traced back to John Henry at, at any point. Uh, the biggest thing that people have brought up time and time again, and I get it, is his lack of aggressiveness, that he was never willing to make the big move, that you know every trade deadline, every offseason, we would come in and be like, all right, we got a couple interesting pieces, but that's kind of it. Like, we didn't sign this big guy. We didn't trade for this guy. Um, what's up with that? Why does this keep happening to us? And again, I think... I mean, first of all, Heim Bloom was allowed to sign one marquee free agent in his time, which was Trevor Story. And 
it was we were even lucky to have gotten that because at the time Trevor Story was basically the last marquee free agent on the market before the 2022 season right there was that period before the lockout where everyone was signing places because they wanted to you know they wanted to not have to worry about their free agency throughout however long the lockout was going to last and they came up empty there and then going into the you know going out of the lockout everyone was signing left and right Trevor Story was essentially the last guy and the Red Sox got him and a lot of Red Sox fans will probably remember that throughout several big free agencies uh there or even medium free agencies small free agencies whatever there were guys that the Red Sox were in on that they had interest in that they were talking to that they made offers to that they didn't land and that is Heim Bloom doing his part you know saying that he wants to get this guy, that he has a price range in mind. And then it's on from there, it's on John Henry to actually put the money on the table. And it never happened. That's just what it is. It's John Henry not being willing to sign the free agents that Heimblum wanted him to, him to sign. Like, when you're talking about any free agent that's worth more than, like, 60, 70 mil a year, that's an owner's decision far more than it's a GM slash man slash, you know, president of baseball ops or whoever's decision. Uh, like signing, you know, like I know that like, you know, you give Dombrowski credit for signing David Price to that deal, but that was ultimately Dave Dombrowski saying, Hey, I want price. This is the price. Didn't pun unintended there. And yeah. Henry going, okay, yeah, let's do it. Right. But when Bloom did it, he said, you know, Hey, I want player X. Here's the price. And John Henry says, nope, can't do that. Sorry. But hey, I guess we could sign Trevor Story because that's the last guy. And John Henry has always been about his public persona, right? I mean, anytime, like John Henry is a guy and most MLB owners are like this, but, you know, they're off the internet. They're kind of out of uh, touch with what people think of them, which is probably the right move because I think any owner is, you know, subject to any sort of criticism at any point. Um, and, you know, they don't want to face it, which is natural. But John Henry has not. Chris Cotillo came on this show about a month ago, and he told us that John Henry has not formally spoken to the media since the Mookie Betts trade. And that was three and a half years ago at this point that he has actually opened himself up uh, to the media's questions. And if you remember from back of this offseason, he was at the Winter Classic, you know, for the Bruins game at Fenway and he got booed relentlessly by the crowd. And what did he do? He signed Raphael Devers the next day because he realized, Oh gosh, the people don't like me. I got to do the thing that people want me to do. Right. Uh, so with that being said, John Henry uh, has always, and I think we can say this now that Heim Bloom is gone without sounding like conspiracy theorist, but John Henry hired Heim Bloom to be the guy that takes attention off of him. Uh, you know, the not wanting to be aggressive, the not wanting to make the big move. That was always a thing that John Henry wanted to put Heimblum in his place for. Um, you know, whether it's the Mookie Betts trade, whether it's the cutting salary, getting under the luxury tax, not wanting to spend, all of that goes back to John Henry. And I'll I'll go back anyway, I that was a little bit of a tangent into my main point, but let's look at the 2023 trade deadline. Uh, because a lot of people gave Bloom criticism for not really budging. They didn't buy, they didn't sell, they didn't do a whole lot. They traded for Luis Arias, which was their main move. You know, to a lot of people, it was very underwhelming. And you got to keep in mind that John Henry's, you know, 
ordered job for Heimblum was to win and replenish the farm system. Like he didn't take away that duty at the trade deadline. That was still very much Heim's job. And, you know, at that point, if you're, if, you know, if people wanted him to make the big deal, if they wanted him to trade for Dylan Cease, if they wanted him to trade for player X or trade player X away, you were compromising one of those two things, you know, because if you're going to, let's say he wanted to trade for Dylan Cease, that's going to cost him two of the top five prospects in the organization. You're compromising winning and, you know, actually holding up the farm system that he had spent years building. Uh, and ultimately he chose to hold up the farm system at the, at the sacrifice of a couple wins, which by the way, now that we're in hindsight, and I said this before the trade deadline and it's turned out to be pretty correct, but if you look at virtually any pitcher, starting pitcher that was sold at the deadline or rumored to have been possibly sold going into the deadline, almost none of them have been good. Dylan Cease has like a 70 RA since the trade deadline. Jack Flaherty has like a 60 RA for the car or for the Orioles. Uh, Michael Lorenzen has an 80 RA since his no hitter. Um, Lucas Giolito, we've documented very well, right? I mean, I think everyone knows what the situation's been there. Um, it hasn't been a good trade deadline for buyers and for sellers. I mean, the Red Sox didn't really have a ton. Like they could have traded Adam Duvall. They could have traded James Paxton and gotten like the number 45 prospect in the Dodgers system that wouldn't have made it to the majors. Maybe they could have traded Alex Verdugo, but even then there's not a whole lot that they could have done. The best thing in hindsight, from a buyer's perspective, the best thing they could have done at this trade deadline was trading for like Jordan Montgomery who was going to get them another two wins and they would finish at 83 and 79 instead of 81 and 81. Um, again, this is Heim making the decision to try to try to do the best thing to balance the things that John Henry ordered him to do. And when you consider that, it was probably fair to not really move that much of the trade deadline. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to, you know, to, back off this I'll, I'll definitely go i'll definitely get back into the trade deadline stuff but uh mm-hmm. as a point you were making earlier about the about ownership and you know off especially in the off season like what's been going on because that's where the money spent is is mm-hmm. in the off season um and one one story that like i think we it, it, people when when nathan evaldo was popping off earlier this season everyone was like ah I can't believe, you know, Bloom didn't get this guy. And, you know, I can't believe that it was Bloom, Bloom, Bloom. Um, you know, the story for the, the story that MLB.com writer Ian Brown sort of uh, professed on, I think it was uh, Steve Peralt's podcast. I think it was uh, Beyond the or, um, Inside the, the Monster. Inside the Monster, yeah. Inside the Monster. Um, and he talked about how, uh, Eovaldi was offered something good by the Red Sox early in the offseason. Eovaldi uh, rejected it, wanted to go out in the market. Eovaldi goes out into the market. He does not get the money from other teams that he that uh, that he wants um, or thought he was worth. And then he goes back to the Red Sox and was like, hey, how about that earlier offer? And the Red Sox apparently went apparently in the organization we're like okay we've signed you know yoshida we've signed turner uh jansen martin uh haven't signed kluber yet but you know that's that was kind of the supplemental move after yovaldi but we've signed all these guys you know we can't really we can't really we don't really have the money to sign you i don't think those 
like logically those words aren't coming from Heim Bloom. Those no, are coming from not at all from ownership. Uh, that's the reason why Nathan Eovaldi was not signed this past offseason. That's the reason why the the starting rotation is in a worse state than they would have been uh, with Nathan Eovaldi. So they they signed Corey Kluber, and yeah, that signing has been a has been a disaster. It looked way better back then. And, you know, I think we, we both agreed we would have rather had Eovaldi, but kind of understood like Kluber could potentially be something. Turned out he was nothing, but he was $7 million less, less expensive this year than Nathan Eovaldi was. And he was $24 million less expensive overall than Nathan Eovaldi was in that contract. Uh, and that's, I think that's what John Henry was thinking about, not, not Heim Bloom. So I think, yeah, I think that's one great example of how ownership was, much much to blame for the non-aggression for especially free agents uh regarding regarding the red sox over the past few years and like i i don't know i I want more people to see that that's for sure uh along with the along with that um there is uh the fact yeah i think something you mentioned about uh jeff passon's tweet like they were yeah, they were top three in payroll each year that they've won the World Series under Fenway Sports Group. Um, and they were 11th this year, I think, is is what the tweet said. They were 11th yeah. in baseball this year, which, yeah, that's good. You, you know, that's that's good. And but considering the situation like and how how the past few years have been, it's not going to create like a winning club for the Red Sox. They needed to spend if they wanted to compete this year and and they didn't. And that's mostly on ownership. Um, apparently their opening day payroll. And I read this on the athletic yesterday, their opening day payroll. They it was the lowest the Red Sox ranked in opening day payroll since 1997. It's been 26 years since they ranked that low in opening day payroll. That's that's not Heim Bloom's decision. That is on ownership. And there have been instances under the Fenway Sports Group era where ownership has really won, like as a public sort of a public relations thing, really wanted to spend and get people to get on board with the Red Sox and probably made the, you know, Theo Epstein or Ben Sherrington make some decisions they didn't really want to make and sign some guys maybe they didn't really want to sign, didn't think were, were smart deals. I think that most notably with the Pablo Sandoval and Hanley Ramirez signings uh, before the 2015 season. Like, Carl Crawford as well. Like, Car- yeah, Carl Crawford, like not smart deals, but they wanted to sell tickets. They wanted to let the Red Sox fans know that they were on board. Uh, but in this case, you know, ownership wanted to spend less money and, and blame it on uh, uh, blame it on the front office. Yeah. Uh, so I think I want to get into my next point now. And this is kind of I think this is the thing that's really been frustrating me the most over this really, really over the last four years, but especially now that it's happened. And again, I'm saying this now because Heimblum is gone. and I don't sound as like a conspiracy theorist because it all sounds a lot more true now than it did before the firing happened. But the thing that really frustrates frustrates me the most is that this reaction the reaction that the like anti-heim crowd has shown is exactly what john henry orchestrated throughout these four years john henry specifically has always wanted to shift the blame elsewhere he's a guy that doesn't like being accountable he's a guy that 
you know, always wants to look good. He like anytime he shows up to the media, it's because he either really needs to because he just traded Mookie Betts or he really wants to look good. Right. Like he was at the Devers press conference because, hey, look at me. I did this great thing. I signed the guy that you guys want me to sign. Right. Like I did the thing like everyone cheer me. Uh, He's always been about his own public perception and wanting people to not to like him and what he's doing. And he knew going into 2019 or going out of 2019 that he was about to do a lot of things that the fans weren't going to like. So what does he do? He hires Heim Bloom, a guy that had just come from the Tampa Bay Rays. What were the Tampa Bay Rays known about in 2019? Not spending a lot of money and winning, right? Like they were the team that was, you know, they were, they were the money ball team at the time. Like they were the team that had the 30th ranked payroll and they won 90 whatever games in 2019. And they were hiring that guy. And the narrative that a lot of the media in Boston, a lot of fans took on was, oh, no, like they're signing the small market guy, like they're going to perform like a small market team now. And that's exactly what John Henry aimed for. Right. He he hired a guy specifically from I think it's specifically from a small market team that can then, you know, he decided, all right, now that I got this guy. I'm not going to spend a lot of money. And you have people being like, all right, Haim, it's not Tampa anymore. Let's go. It's Boston. You got to spend the money. Right. And while John Henry's hiding in the shadows, not spending the money, Haim is getting the blame for it because it's what he knew in Tampa, right? Like he's doing the thing that he had previously had success in, in his, in his last job. Um, and, you know, now that he is out, you know, they have, they have the people celebrating that Haim was the guy that was like the reason the Red Sox weren't spending money and they weren't being aggressive and blah, blah, blah. And this is exactly what John Henry wants you to think. Like you are falling for his trick. This, if you think that, if you're the guy that's celebrating Heim Bloom's downfall and celebrating his firing, this is how John Henry wanted you to react in 2019 when he hired Heim and knew that all of this was going to happen, right? John Henry knew that he was going to put Heim in an impossible situation. He was going to make him trade the franchise player and replenish the farm system and not make the big moves and not spend the money while also, you know, uh, trying to pretending to try to win right like and oh they're you know they're only 500 now and it's convenient for the red Sox to point to the last 20 years and be like well look at this look at the success that we had it from 2004 to 2018 we won four championships and now we're not very good so this is unacceptable and this is not the standard right it's easy and convenient for them to point at that but they're the ones that secretly change the philosophy from within and heim was always going to be the fall guy right like now, you know, we've seen it now that they're that he's been fired, that they're throwing him under the bus and they're saying, well, we want to win. You know, Sam Kennedy's at the press conference saying, you know, we're here to win championships, you know, implying that Haim wasn't. Um, so the thing that frustrates me the most, again, is people letting John Henry getting get away with what he's done to this team in the last four years, because Haim was designed to be the guy that shifts the attention away from John Henry. And he's done exactly that with this fan base yeah 100 percent there um and yeah I, I think yeah over time it seems more and more deliberate that john henry hired someone from tampa bay could have been even like cleveland like he mm-hmm. could have done that after 2019 especially like cleveland had that pedigree at the time you know they'd won many di- many divisions on a small payroll you even know. like oakland was coming off of back-to-back playoff appearances at the time yeah like but you know he did he wasn't gonna he probably yeah he probably wasn't gonna hire someone from 
uh, someone, uh, an organization that's, you know, very analytically developed and spends a yeah. lot of money like the Dodgers, Dodgers. or the Astros, um, or even like, I don't know, the San Francisco Giants, they didn't really have that pedigree at that time, but specifically the Dodgers or Astros, he wasn't going to sign, you know, an assistant GM or a director of player development out of there because those teams have been known to develop guys and also spend a lot of money. Dodgers, obviously, you know, consistently a top three payroll Astros right now are like top five consistently, you know, when they were, you know, in that champ in, in that phase where they were winning a hundred games in a row, were a top 10, top five, usually payroll. Um, but yeah, he picked the guy from Tampa Bay because they, you know, he figured fans will think, you know, Oh, the, the, the chief baseball officers in charge of spending the money, which is not the case at all. Um, but I think it's easy to, it was easy to sort of fool Red Sox fans like that because there hasn't been that grift between owners. There's never been that before the the bloom era, there was never that grift between ownership and GM slash whatever president of baseball ops slash mm-hmm. chief baseball officer. There was never that grift between them because they were pretty much on board with the same things usually on, you know, getting the best players possible uh, spending on good free agents like that's that had that's what it was like from the early 2000s through 2019 and that changed uh, after 2020 and it was a correlation that Heim Bloom happened to be there for for all those yeah. years but that if it, was, if it that wasn't is on John Henry yeah and if it wasn't Heim Bloom it was going to be the other guy that they hired like they they when they fired Dave Nebraska the idea was the next guy is going to come in here and we're going to make him the fall guy. If it wasn't Heim Bloom, it would have been, you know, Joe Schmo from from the from Cleveland, right? Like it would have yeah. been anyone. Um, and by the way, I just I want to say like, I'll, I don't think Heim was the perfect executive. Like I'm not the guy that's gonna like agree with every single thing that he did. I'll acknowledge that like there are things that I wish he did better, uh, here and there in the baseball operations department. But I mean, I think the main point of this entire thing is to highlight how he was not really given the fairest shot here and he was designed from the very beginning to be the fall guy. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Dave Dombrowski, Chris, because I do want to get into something that I talked about to you last night that I want to remind people of when Dave Dombrowski left the Detroit Tigers in 2015, he left them as a barren wasteland, right? I mean, they were, you know, getting out of their championship window. They had an aging core. They were in the middle of a, last place season a disappointing year for them they had the worst farm system in baseball and they had an aging core like it was it was a brutal situation for the next guy to inherit and the tigers have not been relevant since it's been eight years since that and they've had one winning season they have never made the playoffs and it still doesn't even really look like they're that close like you know they've we've had times here and there where you know maybe they have some pieces and like maybe if this and that goes right they could do it we still haven't really seen it from them and it's been eight years again that is a very long time to have and all of that started with the situation that Dave Dombrowski left them in Heim Bloom on the other hand inherited virtually the same situation coming off of a disappointing season worst farm system in baseball aging core about to trade the best player like Heim inherited virtually the same situation that Alavila did, and he's taken them to the playoffs once already, which is more than Alavila did. He's, you know, given them a much better farm system uh, with a quality of major league roster, 
uh, you know, because the Tigers did have a solid farm system in the year where they, you know, lost like 40 games or they lost like 120 games or whatever it was in 2019 when they had like the worst offense ever. Um, and, you know, they have a competitive team. Like the Red Sox have had a competitive team to some degree in every year from 2021 20, to 23. The Tigers have had one competitive team in the last eight years. And maybe this says more about Alavila than it does about Bloom. But it certainly says something that Heim Bloom was able to turn this roster around within two to four years, and the Tigers still haven't really done it in eight years. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a good point to make. And and yeah, despite all, you know, people will always mention the the last place finishes, but the Red Sox had a winning record under the under the Heim Bloom <laughs> era. Um yeah. despite all the last place finishes, it's just like, yeah, one of the last place finishes was a 60 game season. Uh, the other, they were uh, six games below 500. And if they do it this year, they could very well do it with a winning record. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, yeah, they, they've they've won more than they've lost in the Bloom era. It hasn't been good. Like he hasn't he never he didn't really crazy exceed expectations. But, you know, much uh, as, as we've been talking about ad nauseum, much of the blame is not on Bloom and it's it's on outside sources like ownership and, and whatnot. Um yeah, and and uh, God, what what was what was the point that you made uh, before the um, before talking about the Tigers? Because I think I wanted to explain. It was about that. it was about how like anyone who celebrates Heimbloom's downfall is validating what John Henry wanted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and to to go <laughs> to go along with that, uh, yeah, the Red Sox will likely spend this offseason. They will likely get a marquee free agent of some sort, probably a starting pitcher, one of maybe Snell, Nola, or Yamamoto, maybe two of them, who knows. Um, that is because ownership decided they wanted to spend more money and get more people on board with the Red Sox because the the Red Sox fan base's fr- frustrations have grown too much for ownership at this point, and they want to sell tickets, they want to sell merch, they want people to be on board with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, and they're going to spend money, but that is not that is not money that Heim, no. Wa- Heim Bloom would have refused to to spend this offseason if he was given that proper budget. Um, yeah. It is going to be whoever whoever the GM is going to be coming in that's going to be coming in. They're coming into a pretty good situation, according to Fangraphs. The Red Sox have the third best farm system in baseball. I know MLB Pop- Pipeline has them like 16th, but Baseball America also has them fifth. So you know average it all out they're like a top 10 farm system in baseball they're probably going to have a lot of financial flexibility this coming off season uh they're you know they're a few pieces away from being a playoff team that's for sure we we can agree on that and along with them having one of the better farm systems in, in baseball they also have a good core of good good core of players that have like less than two years of service time uh notably Tristan Cassis, who's in the Rookie of the Year running, uh, Brian Bayo, who has really developed well this year, Jaron Duran, who's really developed well this year. Um, I know, I guess he's still considered a prospect, but Sedan Raphael is looking really good as a real, like, true utility guy, but is also really good, like, not, doesn't deserve the marker of utility guy. But mm-hmm. whoever's coming in is coming into a nice situation, and a lot of the, and a lot of the reason why the Red Sox, or why the next GM is going to be coming into a good situation is because of the actions of Heim Bloom. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I see three different possibilities with the next Red Sox, uh, you know, main executive, whoever it's going to be. 
One of them is they're going to hire Dave Dombrowski 2.0. They're going to spend a lot of money. They're going to trade a lot of the big name prospects and deplete the farm system that Heim spent a lot of time building up. Um, and, you know, they'll have they'll have a World Series window for a few years. But guess what? Anyone can do that. Anyone like anyone, any GM in baseball right now can make X trade and sign X player and make the Red Sox a World Series contender with the front with the with the uh, farm system that they have and the major league roster that they have. Anyone can do that. Uh, that's the easiest thing to do among the three possibilities. Number two is a guy that's going to keep the farm system intact, so maybe sign a couple guys. And under that circumstance where the Red Sox are spending money and keeping the farm system, that further confirms the narrative that Henry wanted Bloom to be the fall guy because you're essentially signing a guy that's doing the work, the same work that Heim Bloom was doing, but also John Henry's spending money to make it look like Heim was the guy that didn't want to spend the money. Right. Like that's going to confirm everything that I had just said. And number three is just entirely Heimbloom 2.0. The Reds, like John Henry's still not going to want to spend money, but they'll keep the farm system intact. You know, they'll they'll keep the major league roster that they have and go into next year with the same team. I think those are the three possibilities uh, of what's going to happen here. Um, Yeah, that's that's what I see happening. Yeah, and I think in that first example, we're basically just describing Dave, Dave Dombrowski, <laughs> which is, you, you know, that's, that's you know, Red Sox, former president of baseball ops. They won a World Series mm-hmm. under him. And I, you know, despite him getting fired uh, kind of soon, uh, I think we would both agree he did a pretty good job, you know, it yeah. ended in a World Series. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's a lot of because of what he built, but also mm-hmm. a lot of because because uh, ownership allowed him to do stuff. But what Dave Dombrowski essentially did, he came in after 2015. Uh, ben Sherrington was in charge from 2012 uh, to 2015, like mid mid 2015. And what, what Sherrington did, he didn't like, didn't sign too many marquee free agents um, or at least under his, under his wing, they didn't sign a lot of free agents. Uh, he denied a lot of, enticing trades he denied mm-hmm. a matt harvey trade that would have sent mookie Betts to the mets i believe uh he denied a cole hamels trade that i think involved xander bogarts and dave dombrowski came in would have made those used, deals he he would have he would have made those deals at the time but he used the players that sherrington did not trade and ended up being really uh high level major league talent guys like mookie Betts and xander bogarts along with andrew benintendi and uh jackie bradley jr like he used those guys for the MLB roster and built on it using trades from, uh, pre, you know, what their prospects were at the time: Moncada, Kopech, Anderson, Espinosa, um, Manuel Margot for the Craig uh, Kimball trade. Like he used the prospects they used, and he used he used the MLB talent on the roster. Those guys could have been traded by Sherrington, but were decided not to. I think I see a lot of that happening. Uh, that could potentially happen with this next GM is, you know, Raphael is still there. Like he could have been traded for one of these pitchers in this past trade, de- trade deadline. He, this next GM is going to keep Raphaela around on the, uh, on the roster and use him and maybe trade some, some other top prospect. That's, that's not on the MLB roster right now. Um, that's probably best case scenario in that situation. Hopefully he doesn't trade uh, anybody in that young core, 
But yeah, what I'm sort of hoping for is like hot is like a hiring of like Heim Bloom with the money, which would just be offensive to Heim Bloom. Uh, it would be kind of like Heim Bloom would it, it would really make me make me pissed off if I was Heim Bloom because Heim Bloom with the money is just like Heim Bloom uh, with just ownership's Heim Bloom approval. With, yeah, exactly. It's Heim Bloom with ownership's approval. That's exactly it. Um, I do want to talk about this farm system, by the way, because we've talked so much about it. We haven't really gotten into it. Uh, like I, like you said, they are ranked, you know, in the top five on several of the publications, whether it be Fangraphs, Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus also. Um, but not a lot of people have talked about, like, the guys in it, like the the top guys, because Jeff Passan uh, went on radio yesterday and he said that the Red Sox farm system is Orioles-like. Orioles-like. The Orioles have the best farm system. They still have guys coming through. And you got to keep in mind what the Orioles did to get that farm system compared to what the Red Sox did. The Orioles were the worst team in baseball from 2019 through 21. They had, you know, first overall draft picks a couple of times. They had, or at least once, right? I and mean, they had the first round overall draft pick once. They had top five picks every single year. And they hit on all of them, yes. Like, they drafted Adley Rutschman first overall. They drafted Gunnar Henderson in the second round that same year. They drafted Jackson Holiday first overall. They drafted Colton Kowser fifth overall they drafted Heston Kerstad second overall like they drafted all these guys very early in the draft the Red Sox had a top five pick once they had it once and most of those top prospects those are Himes guys whether he signed them internationally whether he drafted them at a you know at a non like prestigious spot like Roman Anthony the guy that might be their top organizational prospect heading into next year he was drafted in the second round and he was playing in high school 18 months ago and now he's tearing up double a which double a i know that it's not the highest level but it's arguably the level with the most talent because triple a is filled with a lot of guys that are either quad a players or guys in their like mid to late 30s that are just trying to stay in professional baseball right like when we went to a Sox game and we saw Derek holland in the clubhouse like that's what triple a is right double a is where you're facing the best talent and Roman Anthony is already he has like an like a 900 OPS there uh when again he was playing in high school 18 months ago uh Kyle Teal who they drafted in the first round of this year 14th overall like not a not a you know a clear first round pick uh where you know exactly who you're going to get and who's going to be available um he's he has an 1100 OPS in double A already like the Red Sox have guys that are going to be contributing to the major league team in their farm system. And that I didn't even talk about Marcelo Meyer. I didn't even talk about Nick York, you know, like there are guys that I left out. Those are just the two examples that are tearing up double a right now. Uh, and then that doesn't get into, you know, Sedan Rafaela on the roster right now, Tristan Casas, you know, who's a rookie of the year candidate, uh, will your Abreu who's looked really good, who has very strong batted ball metrics for the Sox so far in a small sample size. Like they have guys that are going to be contributing to the major league roster that are in their system right now that Heim built up. Yeah. And, and like Bloom, even if, even if he didn't, uh, select some of them or, or you know, inter internationally draft some of them, he had the will to keep them around and not mm -hmm. dish them off for, you know, a temporary fix on, on a roster that needed more than a temporary fix. Uh, you know, and I think also Dombrowski deserves a little, a teensy bit of credit at the 2019 trade deadline for not taking really any action and not trading someone like Tristan Cassis or Jaron Duran, who are, 
who look to be, you know, long-term pieces for the Red Sox and guys they might want to try to extend this year, uh, which, you know, who, you know, good on, good on uh, Dombrowski and Bloom for not trading them as prospects when there was a lot of holes on the MLB roster that, you know, a lot of people wanted to fix. So, so yeah, so even if, even if Bloom didn't, you know, draft uh, Cassis or sign Rafaela internationally, he kept them around, you know, their, that development system uh, was under Bloom and they're succeeding because of a lot of, you know, the coaching and, and, uh, and, you know, analytics departments and whatnot. So, so yeah, like it's, he could have, he could have, he could have traded some of these guys and decided not to. And yeah, I mean, going, going back into the, you know, diving back a little bit into that, you know, into the last couple of trade deadlines, like, you know, they were not one piece away from making the playoffs. There's seven games back in the wild card right now, I believe. Um, you know, as you mentioned, if they got Jordan Montgomery, the best starting pitcher, what's ended up being the best starting pitcher acquisition, uh, you know, they once every five starts, they'd probably get, five to six innings, two to three earned runs allowed. They'd win maybe six out of 10 of his starts as opposed to like three out of 10 of some other schmuck starts. And they'd end up this season um, four games back at the wild card spot instead of seven. And then we would have, and maybe they, maybe they traded off someone that would have helped the Red Sox in the future on the MLB roster. So yeah, I mean uh, like, yeah, I, I just, I don't understand everybody saying that this past trade de- deadline was a failure. I could see the argument for maybe selling off Paxton or Duvall, but I think the results have showed that that it was a good decision not to not to trade off at the trade deadline. And I and I, by the way, I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear anything about how it affects the clubhouse because the Angels probably were pretty on board when they when they uh, traded for all those guys with uh, Giolito Lopez. Crone and, and Grichik and they mm. completely fell apart afterwards and they ended up selling off their players for nothing. Yeah. And like this is not even us speaking in hindsight about the trade deadline. Like Chris and I both said on this show, I said on my Twitter, if I had a conversation with you, I said this that the trade deadline was going to be a very underwhelming year for buyers. And it, you know, in most in a lot of cases wasn't great for sellers either. It was pretty good for sellers in some cases, sure, but not for Adam Duvall, but for like Aaron Savali, where like the Rays had to trade one of their top organizational prospects, uh, which was more than the Red Sox were willing to do, and fairly so. Like there, it was just not going, it was never going to be a good trade deadline really for what the, for the situation that the Red Sox were in and there was not not moving. Yeah. There there was not a single player where we came on after, after the trade or after the deadline. And we were like, wow, this is a, this is a game changer. This is going to get them. No. uh, Yeah. Going to get them that ring. This is going to be their, their game one -er. Like there was not a single guy out there. It was except for like I, Verlander, but like the Red Sox were never doing that, and I don't think any Red Sox fans wanted that. No, or, no. or Serger, right? Which you yeah, know, exactly. Unfortunately, he's out for the year now, but that's that's yeah. a hindsight thing. And even and even with Scherzer, we were critical. We knew he had an ERA yep. over four, a FIP over like four and a half. Yeah, and he did uh, look better with the Rangers, but unfortunately, you know, as it goes, he is hurt now for the rest of the season. It is unfortunate, and yeah, Verlander. Uh, Verlander was doing well, but not as, at his Cy Young level, and he cost two like top fifty prospects or something like that. He t- he like, cost the top he t- two of the top three prospects in the Astros system, I believe. Yeah, so two of the top three prospects in, 
in the Astros yeah, system. Again, like, again, to make your team marginally better and still miss the playoffs. Yeah, in, in the Red Sox scenario, it made more sense for the mm-hmm. Astros, but the Red Sox are not the Astros this year. Everybody know everybody knows that. So um yeah, people will point out the trade deadline when Curtis when talking about why Heim should have been fired, but I think that's I think that's part of the reason why Bloom should stay because he made the hard decision not to do anything uh, or not to buy anything. And it, I think it's been proven over time that, yeah, that was, that was the correct decision. It was a seller's market and the Red Sox were not really in a position to buy and Mm -hmm. they were in a position to build for the future. If you want to criticize him for not selling, I kind of understand that, but even then they didn't have any big pieces to really sell off and get much out of. And not only that, but if they, if let's say they trade Paxson, they trade Duvall, right. And, maybe even they trade Verdugo. All right, let's put those three things out there. They're really not getting that much of value in return at any point. Even if it was a seller's market, like those names just aren't getting you guys. It's definitely not getting you major leaguers that are going to contribute. And it's probably not even going to get you minor leaguers that are going to contribute. They're not getting, you know, top 10 organizational pieces for any of those guys. Um, Maybe Verdugo, but still probably not. And, the Red Sox would probably, you know, be in around the same situation that they are in right now where they're hovering 500, they're six, seven games out of a playoff spot. And those same people are saying, well, what if they just kept Paxton to Duval? We could have been more in it. We would have had another starter. We would have had another bat. Like Duran went down. We could have had this outfielder. And that's that's what people are going to say in that scenario. And we're going to talk about, well, what if they kept those guys and they could have been more in contention? Well, we've seen what happened there. Like, there was just no scenario that the Red Sox were going to come out big winners of this deadline. Like, it's not – and that's that, that's simply not any – it's not – I don't even think that's owner's fault. I think that's just what it is. Like, it was an underwhelming trade deadline, generally speaking, with players that were available, and the Red Sox didn't have a lot of guys that they could get a lot of value for. Like, there was just no way they could have come out big winners, uh, especially in hindsight, now that a lot of the big pieces that went – haven't panned out and i that's not even me speaking in hindsight i kind of predicted that yeah and that's and that isn't really a situation that's even exclusive to the red sox i know the giants sort of endured that Mm -hmm. um they were sort of a middling team or they were more in a playoff spot because the nl wild card like there's less of a standard for that like the the al wild card race there's way better teams in it way better records in it than the nl wild card race and that's why the giants are competing but you know any People aren't predicting that the Giants are going to win the World Series this year, and there's good reason for that. And they really, they didn't really have take any actions. I'm sure there were some fans frustrated with that, but that was ultimately probably the right move, I, especially considering if you, if you had a dartboard of all these starting pitchers that were traded for in this in this uh, in this past trade deadline, and you threw a dart, the odds of you landing on a successful trade is very low, very very mm-hmm. low. It's like um, hitting bullseye. Yeah, it, it's like hitting bullseye. Like Jordan Montgomery, I got him. I got him. The the one out of ten chance that I was able to get a hit, I got. And he's uh and now we're gonna be five games back of the wild card instead of seven. Um, yeah. So and again, maybe so, yeah, Aaron I mean, Sabali, he's been solid for the Rays, but again, the Rays traded Kyle Manzardo to get him. Yeah. Like that's a tough like that's you know, there are plenty of guys that and if you and if you're and if you're willing to trade with some prospects to get some guys in return you can do better with Aaron Savali than the the farm system with the farm system that you have. That's just what it is. Yeah. Like the, the Red Sox equivalent probably would have been like Sedan Raffaella mm-hmm. and look how good, like he's looking really good on the MLB roster right now. And the Red Sox will have him for 
six plus years well and even if and again even if you wanted yeah exactly and even if you wanted to trade him you could get a better pitcher than aaron savali i promise you i promise you yeah 100 100 so i guess all in all we wish we wish heimblum well Um, i I still have a few things i want to get into yeah absolutely Um, go ahead so there's this there's that rumor that's going around the media right now about like allegedly uh Heimblum was offered from a team to trade Chris Sale with his entire salary uh, to get like a couple players back and Heim wanted better players so he said no I'm calling BS on that there's just there's no way um, logistically it wouldn't make sense based on what Henry has ordered him to do it's too perfect for him to have said no because John Henry would have said yes before Heim even had a chance to say no if that happened and secondly uh the red like if you're if you've been a Boston sports fan for long enough, you understand what the media and the front office do to people that leave town, uh, no matter who they were. Like when Terry Francona was fired at the end of 2011, it was leaked from the front office that he was a drug addict and that he was like in a bad marriage and like a lot of crazy stuff about his personal life. Again, the winningest manager in franchise history, the guy that broke the curse and won two world series with the Red Sox. That's how they, that's how they uh, showed him, showed him the door on his way out. Uh, When Mookie was traded, right. They, the Boston globe published all that stuff about his, about his, uh, you know, his contract negotiations that painted him in a bad light. They do this with every person. Don't fall for it. I promise you. First of all, I promise you a team did not look at Chris Sale, who had just broken his hand on his second start, coming back from his second consecutive long-term injury at his age, and said, I want that guy and all of his money. I promise you. I promise you that didn't happen. The only way I'd believe it is is if Heimblum admitted it himself. Uh, But it probably came from the front office, and that's someone who works in John Henry's best interest. Right? Right. Yeah. I promise you. That did not happen. Someone, or yeah, try, it did. Trying to get a promotion. Misleading. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it it doesn't make any real logical sense. Like if if the report didn't exist and you just hypothetically threw it out there, it'd be like, oh, that's a that's a pretty funny joke that you just said. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you should. That's. That's pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, I mean, look, you could be a front, you could be an anonymous front office member and go to the media and say, actually, uh, the Angels offered Shohei Otani for the number fifty prospect in the Red Sox system, and Heim said no because he wanted Mike Trout too. With like, with the Angels still taking on that entire contract, you see how easy it is to say that. Yeah, like that's all it <laughs> exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the last it would just, thing, it would go, it would go against too many philosophies. Like it would go against mm-hmm. ownership philosophy of not spending over the past couple of years. It would go against like Heim Bloom's philosophy. Like he, he likes young talent. He probably doesn't like an aging contract. And I think the report was also that along with, along with, you know, taking sale on full contract, full, like $30 million a year, along with all that, they wouldn't ask for anything besides Chris Sale, and they'd add their own little prospects into this package. Like they'd, they'd, they would give players along with all of the money that would that would be on this guy who you know hadn't really had a good season since 2018. Yeah, dude, that's like the that's like the free iPhone in this link. Like they're, they're yes. come on now. Like you think people are falling for that? Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the. AI robot in my DMs uh, yeah. telling me she wants to meet up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Like um, it's it's and you know, and you know why that stuff exists? It's because people fall for it. Like like someone in the front office knows if we say this to the media, people will run with it. Like people will. Like not only will the media run with it, but some fans will run with it. But like, oh. come on now, let's be let's be honest with ourselves here. That's total BS. And I did. I have one last point. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about this entire thing? I just reacting to that i think also people like to dislike heim people like to dislike uh heim bloom mm -hmm. i think yeah. he also represented like the new school thing that a lot of people yep. hate you know he yep. represented analytics he's the, he he's the nerd with the computer that never played the game right yeah he he represented all that whereas dave dombrowski represented you know big time baseball you know sign the guy sign, sign the guys that are good you know that's what you do and you know yeah, yeah heim bloom represented like the analytics people like us you know let's be honest mm -hmm. but yeah like he represented that sort of thing that people generally hate so people sort of wanted to dislike him I, i'm not going to say from the beginning but you know after a few moves uh that's kind of what people wanted to paint him as so the red sox are now going to begin their process searching for the next gm the next head executive whatever they're going to call that person and whoever comes into that will be yes inheriting a very good situation but if you're looking at the bigger picture the red sox last two gm their president of baseball ops chief baseball officers whatever have been fired for doing exactly what they were supposed to do dave dombrowski was hired to deplete the farm system to build a world series contender right now and win a world series and leave the Red Sox eventually with a barren wasteland of farm system and a lot of question marks. He did that and he was fired. Heim Bloom was brought in to replenish the farm system, trade the best player and do all these impossible tasks. And he did them. He did exactly what we expected he would do in terms of building a good farm system and, you know, X, Y, and Z. He was fired for owner for doing what the owners ordered him to do. That is two consecutive jobs where someone did what they wanted did what owners wanted them to do and got fired for it on a short leash if you are any self-respecting proven winner gm why would you take this job why would you take the red sox job knowing whatever owner whatever ownership wants you to do you're gonna do it and the second things go a little bit wrong you're gone you're kicked to the curb and we're gonna blame you for everything and you're, you're gonna be the source of all our problems who is going to take that job that is a proven winner? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really hard ask considering the fate of the of this last, you know, GM, I'll just call him a GM, the last mm -hmm. GM and the and the one before him also, like Dave Dombrowski. They didn't really like shame him out the door, but they fired him very quickly. And maybe yeah. it was a mutual parting ways, like maybe Dave Dombrowski also just didn't want to clean up his own mess it's the um, same thing as detroit he saw what was ahead and he was like that isn't someone else's problem i'm gonna go to philly where i'm also inheriting a talent team with a lot of money i'm gonna take them to the world series yeah like so that's that's also one of my favorite things by the way is when people point out that the red sox shouldn't have fired dave dombrowski because look what he's doing in philly it's like man do you think do you think he would have brought the red sox to the world series by now like you get <laughs> out of here it's yeah, it's hilarious. Get to think out about. of here with that. But um, but yeah, like the last three Red Sox general managers have been have lasted less than four years each. 
two mm-hmm. of those GMs won World Series with the team. That just never happens. That re- no. rarely ever happens. When when James Click got fired from the Astros after they won the World Series, it was giant news. It was like, how? What the heck are the Astros doing? The Red Sox have the Red Sox have basically done that uh, a couple times, and they've done that with Heim Bloom. I know he didn't win a World Series, but he has. You know, he he. They were two wins away from going to one. So there is, there is that. And he did basically every, everything that ownership asked him to, um, including, you know, going to the door that, that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that they asked him to go out into, because that's what they did. They told, they told him, don't, you know, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. And that's pretty much, yeah. pretty much what happened. And um, Sean McAdam of, of mass live wrote a column detailing exactly what we're trying to say, but ownership has dug themselves a hole with this hiring process with their candidates knowing what they did to the last two guys and what they will probably do to them as well. Yeah. One, 100%, 100%. Especially like, like, yeah, like if you're, if, if you're known for winning, if you have had a, a job with a lot of job security before, like, yeah, you you don't want to, you don't want to get involved in this. You don't want to be like, Hey, Hey family, let's move let's move to Boston where I'm going to have this job for three years. Even if I, even if I do exactly what ownership tells me to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a really, really tough ask. There's no, it's like, it's like being a, security. it's like, it's like being like a billionaire moving into this huge mansion, but like the last two families that live there were like brutally murdered. Like right. that's, that's what the next guy is inheriting. That's what and it the- is. And the mur and the murderer lives next door. Yeah, and the murderer. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the murderer <laughs> is like a landlord. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's even it's, though that's not how it works, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it's something analogous in that sense, for yeah. sure. It's it's uh, yeah, it's really rough. Like, yeah, they've they've done exactly. Yeah, the past two GMs have done exactly what they've been ordered to do and and gotten fired for it so so yeah i wish i wish heim bloom well i think he will probably get another job of this power i think uh, the, the funniest point. the funniest possible outcome is that the angels fire perry manassi and hire heim bloom and then order him to trade mike trout that will be hilarious and then people will say that heim bloom treated mookie Betts yeah. and mike trout mike trout yeah not 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 uh Artie Moreno and John Henry. Yeah. And shout out like I think I was another point I was gonna mention, I, I don't really have to go into it too too hard, but when people look at the Angels and and a lot of their problems, people know to blame the owner. Uh people mm-hmm. know that a lot of it is not on the GM. You know, it's been a long-term problem. It's lasted more than any GM that they've I mean, hired. I think I think it's easy to see in that case though, because the Angels have had Jerry Depoto, they've had Billy Epler, they've had Perry Manassian, and nothing has changed. Heim Bloom has been the first guy where the Red Sox have been mediocre, right? They were great yeah. under Dabrowski. They won a World Series under Charrington, even though they probably had a worse record under Charrington. And, you know, yeah. they won two under Theo. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Like, so it's it's easier to see through the owner's nonsense um, when they just never succeed. So, yeah, but I think over time... I hope over time people see through it, you know, see through it. But overall, I mean, I, I hope for the Red Sox success. I hope that the 
Red Sox spend in the offseason and get a good starting pitcher, two good starting pitchers, hopefully, um, and allow their GM to to spend the money that they should be able to spend. Um, so that's what I hope for. I hope I hope the best for Heim Bloom. Um, I think he yeah, he was really screwed out of the situation. I hope he doesn't have to go through an experience like this uh, ever again as a as a potential GM. I hope he gets treated uh, much more fairly by um, his owners and how the owners, you know, defend them or don't defend them in the media. Um, yeah, I just hope I hope he has, you know, better days ahead uh, because, yeah, he was he was hired for a reason. He was hired because he's a really smart guy and knows a lot about baseball. And he'll probably be hired again because he brought this farm system from uh, 30th to top five. And well, also years. almost almost making the World Series in that time yeah. frame. Yeah, um, mind you, he he brought the the farm system from 30th to top five with one top five draft pick. Yeah. Like when, yeah. you know, like when the Orioles did it, you know, they had draft picks every year. When the Tigers did it, they had top draft picks every year. The Red Sox did it without that. That is that like point to another situation where someone's done that in right. a four year span. Yeah. And I will credit you because I can't name one. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like the Dodgers just permanently like they're always top five. Like it's it they mm-hmm. write it in the report like years ahead. Like, yeah, they're they're top five. They're yeah, they're gonna be in there. They, but, but they also never but they never went from 30th to yeah, they've you know, never forever. yeah, exactly. They've never been bottom of the barrel in that respect. So mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> quite the thing to talk about. I I yeah, I really I enjoyed talking about it. Um and I think people in the know will know people in the know will give Heim Bloom another chance because you could argue he wasn't really given much of a chance in Boston. Um, I don't think you, I I think that's just the correct argument. Like saying you could argument doesn't do it justice. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Jeff Passan put out a good tweet. It was, it was refreshing to see a a baseball media member of that caliber, just spit the truth about it and Mm -hmm. talk about basically break down, break down Heim Bloom's tenure in, in 280 characters or less uh that effectively like that was really good um he's been talking about he's been talking about it on podcasts and stuff just saying things that are just objectively correct and yeah i, I won't be surprised when heim bloom is eventually a gm uh once again probably in the next couple of years uh, i would i would expect that he gets hired somewhere else um and yeah i hope the red sox hire someone somewhat similar to him i know it'll be frustrating to fans but like just sign and it, it would be frustrating to Heim Bloom because he's not being able to finish the job that he started, but I hope they hire someone, you know, in a Dodgers or Diamondbacks or Orioles organization and, mm-hmm. uh, and extend on this and spend more and uh, be able to, you know, win championships. Like we, uh, like we grew up watching, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Anything more on the Heim Bloom tenure? If you are listening to this, and you have been anti Heimbloom. I understand what made you think that way, but please shift your anger towards ownership. That's that's all. Yeah. That's what like we wouldn't have talked for an hour about this if we weren't trying to give more context and understand where people's anger should be focused. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So that moves on to the next GM. Uh, GM uh, news 
regarding yeah an MLB team we will not talk for an hour about this because we're not as strongly <laughs> opinionated about it and yes I understand you know we're both Red Sox fans so we care a lot more about the Red Sox but this is a really unique situation I don't know if any ownership group handles their general managers like this like the, the Red Sox are an extremely reactionary team an extremely reactionary ownership group uh none like we've ever seen like it like maybe maybe George Steinbrenner is the other guy but in yeah. in the but that was with century, managers but that was with yeah, managers was with not man- even GMs yeah that was with managers and you know in the 21st century we just have not seen this it's it's pretty crazy um so yeah uh David Stearns was uh you know longtime Brewers general manager has been hired by the Mets. Um, they've kind of had his eye on him for a while is, is what everybody's saying. Uh, what did you think about uh, the Mets picking up David Stearns as their next GM? Is he replacing Billy Epler? Is he still in the organization? What's his official title? Oh yeah. He, I think he's, I think he's, he's president, president of baseball, of baseball operations. Uh, yeah. That, that kind of fair. Cause Billy Epler is still, you know, there, but I love this move for the Mets. Um, David Stearns, if you don't know, was the GM of the Milwaukee Brewers for the last, I don't know exactly how long, probably like seven to 10 years or so. Um, but the Milwaukee Brewers are going to win, go most likely going to win the division this year. They're going to make their, what, fifth playoff appearance in six years, I think. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty 18, sure. 19, 20, 21. 20, yeah. Fifth playoff appearance in six years uh, yeah. as a small market team with a bottom 10 payroll consistently. Uh, which proves, you know, they have an effective method of finding their guys, right? I mean, they have a great pitching staff that they've developed with Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta. Those are all guys that they drafted, signed, developed, whatever. Um, offense, you know, they've still been there's still been a lot to be desired. But regardless, with a small payroll, they've been able to build a really solid team uh, year in year out. And part of that is because of a weak division, yes. But you know, there still is clearly something to be said. Now, the issue with the Brewers has been ownership not willing to spend a lot of money. They're at the point where they're threatening relocation because, uh, you know, they don't spend a lot of money and people are seeing that for what it is. Um, And the best organizations are, you know, the Dodgers, the Astros, the ones that combine analytic analytical focus with spending money right like you know we always talk about how the dodgers are the rays with money right like the astros uh you know like that's what they are the braves have come into that conversation recently as well the mets spend money we know that there's no doubt about that but they have kind of been behind the eight ball analytic wise right i mean like they don't have a pitching like they just built a pitching lab this year i believe uh like which is, which is like six years too late or so, um, you know, they have been behind the eight ball, but David Stearns is going to bring them back up to speed because the Brewers are up there and he's going to bring them to where the Brewers were. And they're going to, you know, they're going to combine that knowledge with Steve Cohen's spending abilities. And that's going to create a really good system in Queens where the Mets are ideally within five years, a consistent contender with a strong farm. Yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah, David Stearns, I believe it was said he's 38 years old, which is uh, pretty crazy yeah. to think about. Um, very, very young gentleman. And yeah, you hope, you know, you hope that uh, ownership has these has the patience that they need, you know, or, or the patience that he needs. It's it's Steve Cohen, and he has a lot, he's has a lot of impact on the baseball activity going on. So yeah, you you 
you hope that they can, you know, be patient throughout this. Maybe next year is not where the Mets necessarily wanted to be. Um, you know, that they kind of told Max Scherzer that they're that, that next year is going to be a bridge year, which is not what you want to hear when you have like a $300 million payroll or, or around there. Um, so yeah, it was time for a little bit of a organizational divergence, like just kind of a recorrection. They want to, they want to make sure they have the right guy because owner, you know, Steve Cohen's probably going to be there for a while. That philosophy of spending a lot of money is probably going to be there for a while. So they want the right GM to be there to put them in the best spot possible because yeah, sometimes teams spend a lot of money and just don't have the proper development and they don't succeed. Look at the angels. I think they have a, they, they were, they had to get under the, under the luxury tax this year. Um, but they are in a horrible position because they lack player development um, and lack a good farm system. Uh, same thing with the white Sox is they've spent a lot of money the past few years, but they lack player development. They lack a good farm system. So the Mets sort of want to avoid that and they want to be in the right direction. And David Stearns, it seems like from what everybody is talking about, it seems like that's going to be a, a good, uh, a good move there. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to see what the Mets will be able to become with the combination of David Stearns knowledge and Steve Cohen's spending abilities. Yeah, 100%. And, and he's what's good about this uh, from a mess perspective is this is a guy who's already proven. It's not like they're taking mm -hmm. some assistant GM, some number two guy, some director of player development and trying to make him in charge and, and do something he hasn't done before. David Stearns has done this before with a lot less money. It, it seems like a, it's hard to find the negatives in a move like this. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, this is, you know, it's it, it's going to take a while to see what this actually becomes, obviously. Um, but, you know, because the Mets have a lot of guys locked up, you know, we might not see a lot of these, a lot of the David Stearns uh, acquired players consistently in the starting lineup for a couple of years. But, uh, you know, this is a long-term hire, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. They, they have their share of, like, you know, they have – Players that are good now that maybe in four to five years might be under bad, considered under bad contracts or like, you know, not at their peak form and or not what the Mets signed them up to be. I know, you know, they signed Brandon Nimmo for for eight years, like through his like age 38 season or 37 season. You know, Lindor's there for a while. Um, so, yeah, they'll be they'll be racked up in bills. But luckily, from how it's from what we've seen that doesn't seem to really concern Steve Cohen too much. Uh, I think he's willing to take on bad contracts. He's, you know, willing to, he's willing to sign guys uh, for, you know, eight year deals just to get the first few years of that deal and the production of the first few years, first few years of that deal. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, with, with this, with this, it, it seems like they're trying to just avoid being the team that always has to spend money to compensate for their bad development and just be that team that spends money along with good development. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's a that's a good way of putting it. Um yeah, I mean, I don't really have too much to too much else to say on it. It seems like I think that's kind of the extent of what we had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um shout out to the Mets. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the the Heim Bloom is it's it's just way too much to talk about and we could have gone for way longer too. Yeah. Um but yeah, uh, anything more before we get into players to highlight? I think that's kind of it. All right. So now we will get into a, uh, into players, you know, after, after being negative for, or sort of <laughs> negative for about an hour, 
Uh, we had about you know four minutes of positivity with uh, David Stearns, and now we will get into more positivity with our Friday, September fifteenth, twenty twenty three edition of How About That. He's striking out less, walking more, and he's also making better contact. Turning into a strikeout machine just out of nowhere. He's been excellent all around this year. He is getting a... How about that? Yeah, so for my how about that, this is this is big one today. Uh, you know, I'm very proud to be highlighting this guy uh, because you and I have very, you know, have questioned a lot about him, uh, specifically his existence. Uh, but <laughs> Royce Lewis from the Minnesota Twins uh has been has been on the field and contributing for the Minnesota Twins uh this, wow. since August 15th he is slashing 276 356 581 for a 937 OPS a 155 weighted runs created plus and 1.2 FanGraphs wins above replacement uh, before this span he had a ground ball rate of 43.2%, and in this span, he has lowered it to just 27.7%. That is the eighth lowest ground ball rate among the 208 hitters with at least 50 batted balls in this span. Uh, throughout this year, he has raked against four-seam fastballs, and in this span, he is doing it even more. On 34 plate appearances ending on four-seam fastballs in this span, he is hitting 357 and slugging 786. Uh, his run value of 6.9 ranks the seventh highest in baseball in that span. So he's been a top 10 hitter against fastballs. His strikeout rate has also gone from 28.2% before this span to just 18.6%. And his walk rate has gone from 3% to 12 to 10.2%. And this means that his swing decisions have massively improved in this time. His chase rate has gone from 38.6% to 31.3%. His zone swing rate has gone from 64.1% to 68.7%. And also, his outside contact percent has gone from 60.6% to 67.8%. And his zone contact rate has gone from 82.6% to 88.6%, which essentially means that he's making the be better decisions on when to swing, and he's also making contact a lot more. So Royce Lewis has uh, done a lot of things really nicely for the twins over the last month. Yes, Royce Lewis. How about that? Um, yeah. So if you want, if you're wondering like what we mean by existence of Royce Lewis, <laughs> it's kind of been a running joke for almost the entirety of the existence of our show. Unfortunately, um, because like uh, it's it's largely like. Just the fact that we hadn't seen he had been a number one overall draft pick um back in 2017. Is that correct? Uh he was drafted 2017, yeah. Yeah, 2017, first overall draft pick. And he was consistently a top prospect, especially in the twin system. I'm just trying to I'm I've been on my computer because I've been looking at the prospect ranks over the last several years. And yeah, since 2018, from from 2018 through 2021. He was always a top 20 MLB prospect, but we really had no proof of his existence just because I think he had been injured a couple times. Uh, he was unable to like play. He was unable to really rise within the uh, within the Twins farm system. So we just determined that he just hadn't he just didn't exist. He wasn't a real person. Yeah. But now that he's finally come up and he's contributing for the for the Major League Baseball team, the Minnesota Twins. Uh, we he's division, like pretty probably division winner too. Yeah, he's probably he probably does exist. Uh, he's probably like out there breathing somewhere, which is big. 
it, it really it's it's a big development it's a big development on, in our show and um i'm happy mm-hmm. for him i'm happy yeah this him is... it, him it the 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 entity that is Royce Lewis, I'm happy for that. Yeah, no, it's, you know, listen, I it gave me a lot of joy to type that name on this document. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so shout out to Royce Lewis. He's really raking. He's hit a couple grand slams. That's pretty nice. Um, love to see that for, uh, for Royce Lewis. Uh, my how about that is a subject. I've been pretty subject happy lately. You've been very subject happy. I was really hoping you were going to transition into like, he's hit a couple grand slams. He looks good. And he's my, <laughs> but <laughs> alas. Um, but alas, yes. Uh, my subject is the Cubs starting pitching. Um, I was fairly low on them heading into the season. I didn't love like, you know, Stroman and Tyon being like their most their, their highest paid guys i like justin Steele. he was my player to watch uh i but you know i didn't you know kyle Hendricks was sort of on a you know on the decline and i wasn't in love with it but in their last 20 games cubs starters have a 2.46 era and 3.42 fip and 113 and a third innings pitched and in this span the cubs the cubs starting staff has the lowest dra fourth lowest fip highest F war fifth lowest home runs per nine and second lowest walk percentage. Uh, they are also third in innings per start in this span. So not only are they preventing runs, they're preventing runs while also going deeper into the games than, uh, 27 other pitching, uh, you know, 27 other starting staffs. Uh, so just breaking it down individually, Justin Steele, uh, our just collective Cy Young favorite at this point, uh, who we would put down on the ballot if given if given a ballot right now. Uh, Justin Steele has been excellent. He has three starts in this Cubs 20-game span. He has 21 innings under his belt in that span. That's seven innings per start. Only one, one earned run allowed for a .43 ERA and a 1.21 FIP. So is, that has not been a matter of luck. Uh, Jordan Wicks. Uh, who has come up and been a big surprise for the Cubs. He has four starts in this 20-game span with 22 and two-thirds innings pitch, a 199 ERA and 317 FIP. And then along with that, both Kyle Hendricks and Javier Assad both have four starts, 22 or more innings, ERAs below 3.2 and FIPs below four. Uh, and Kyle Hendricks specifically has a 339 FIP. So his, his FIP is far below four and he's not necessarily known for fielding independent pitching, but he's been doing very well with that. Uh, And along with that, the Cubs starting staff has a, has an 80% left on base rate, which ranks third in baseball in the span. Sometimes that can be seen as a bit of luck, but it's working out for them. Uh, The Cubs with runners in scoring position, uh, Cubs starters allow a 218 on base percentage and 290 slugging percentage, which are, third and fourth lowest respectively in this span. Uh, they're doing, they're doing especially well. They're doing well all around, but they're doing especially well with runners in scoring position to prevent those runs from coming in. And uh, they also have a 22% strikeout minus walk rate with runners in scoring position, which is the fourth highest among starting staffs with runners in scoring position in the span. And also with runners in scoring position, they have the second lowest expected slugging and third lowest expected WOBA uh, in this span with runners in scoring position as a starting staff. So, you know, people might point out their left on base 
percentage is a point of luck, but their expected numbers with runners in scoring position are very low. It just seems like they elevate their performance with runners in scoring position, uh, at least in this 20 game span. So the Cubs, they're they're trying to maintain their playoff spot. They're they've been the fifth seed for for a while now. Actually, they've been like the firmly the fifth seed in that playoffs in that uh, playoff picture for a while. And uh, a lot of that has to do lately with their uh, starting pitchers. So shout out to the Cubs starting pitchers. How about that? Um, all right. And now we will go from the highs to the lows where we're talking players and subjects that have been underperforming for our Friday, September 15, 2023 edition of Slightly Alarming Statistics. He's been barreling up the ball way less. He's not missing bats. He's not getting the ball on the ground, and people are hitting it in the air more. It's been so bad. He is getting a slightly alarming. Yeah, so for my slightly alarming, I am staying in the same division that I did my how about that. Actually, no, I'm not. Never mind. Oh, my God. Why did I say that? He's not there anymore. Uh, well, this is awkward. I'm talking about Whit Merrifield. He is uh. not in the AL Central. Same, you know, blue team still. Like, I still associate him with the Royals anyway. Uh, he is with the Toronto Blue Jays now, and since August 16th, he is slashing 168, 198, 211 for a 409 OPS and a five weighted runs created plus, along with a minus 0.7 F4. He ranks dead last among the 168 qualifiers in slugging OPS, weighted runs created plus, and F4. He also has a 175 expected batting average, which ranks uh, third lowest and, or excuse me, second lowest. And a 225 expected slugging, which ranks dead last as well. So uh, his expected numbers are kind of just as bad as his on the surface numbers. Um, throughout this span, his fly ball rate is 29.6%. And his hard hit rate on fly balls is 8.3%. Uh, the league average is 44.6%. He's at 8.3%. If you know Whit Merrifield, you know that he's a contact-heavy guy with not a lot of power. So a 29% fly ball rate is not ideal for him. Uh, his expected average, his expected batting average on fly balls is 0.67, is 0.067. That ranks third worst among the 199 hitters with at least 50 batted balls in this span. And his 129x slugging on fly balls is the second worst on that same list. Uh, and in this span... 25.9% of his batted balls have been fly balls below the hard hit threshold, which means they are fly balls 94 miles per hour or below. 25.9% of his total batted balls have been that, and that is the highest rate on that aforementioned list of 199 players. So Whit Merrifield is not making the right kind of contact, and the Blue Jays just endured a brutal four-game sweep of the Texas Rangers at home, uh, which, uh, you know, Whit Merrifield is in part... Uh, you know, small part, but in part, you know, responsible for the Blue Jays kind of underperformance of as of late. Yeah, Whit Merrifield. Slightly alarming. Um, yeah, he's been. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's not the best. He has been known to have a good amount of success, especially you know, led the league in hits uh two years in a row. But yeah, very unfortunate, and yeah, not the best to not the best to have fly balls when you don't really have home run power um, because it, you know, I think, I think the league BABIP on fly balls is like under 130 typically. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, if, if it's a fly ball that lands in play, it's not, it's usually just not going to be a hit. Um, my slightly alarming is actually, unfortunately we've, we've 
talked about this guy a couple times um not for bad reasons for good reasons because yeah he was a player to watch of mine so this is a talk of shame mm. and he was a how about that of yours so this is a freeze over actually oh, no. so uh we've highlighted him a couple times for various reasons but i'm talking about ha song kim um and i'm not super alarmed he's still overall having a very very good yeah. season and still likely a hit of mine for players to watch but he's kind of just struggled over the last 12 games um, and it's been sort of eye popping and I had to highlight him. In, I had to highlight him here uh, in his last 12 games. Ha Song Kim is hitting 180 with a 421 OPS out of 169 qualifiers in this span. His slugging is third lowest and OPS is fifth lowest uh, out of 97 hitters with 50 plus plate appearances in this span. His expected batting average is fourth lowest and his expected slugging and expected Woba are the lowest in baseball. Uh, out of anyone with 50 plus plate appearances in the span. Uh, also in the span, Ha Song Kim, uh, this is 12 games, by the way. He has zero extra base hits and zero barrels. Uh, he also has an 84.9 miles per hour, 84.9 mile per hour average exit velocity in the span. And out of 89 hitters with 200 plus pitches seen in this span, his average exit velocity is the fourth lowest in baseball. Uh, also with Ha Song Kim, it has been a, a decrease in, you know, ideal hitting, you know, batted ball direction. Uh, his fly ball rate has gone from 26% before the span to 16% in this span, uh, which is, you know, contributed to the lack of barrels and, you know, the lack of extra base hits. Uh, and none of the six fly balls that he has hit have been a hard hit ball. So he is 0 for 6 on the fly balls that he does hit. Uh, and that fly ball rate has also decreased, which has decreased his overall production. Uh, and what has been substituting his fly balls have been ground balls. His ground ball rate has gone from 41% before the span to 51% in the span. Uh, typically, fly balls just get better results than ground balls. Um, you know, I guess in, in Hassan Kim's case, he's not necessarily a big barreler of baseballs. But he does have, I think, close to 20 home runs this season. So he does have that potential. Uh, and unfortunately, also Ha Song Kim's strikeout rate has increased from 19% before the span to 25% in the span. So Ha Song Kim is making a lot of soft contact. He's hitting less fly balls and therefore less barrels. Uh, he's hitting more ground balls and he's also striking out a lot more. Uh, so, you know, he was at one point like an, a good MVP, a, a decent MVP candidate, uh, yeah. if we're being honest, you know, all the nerds were looking out, rooting, <laughs> kind of rooting for it because of, you know, how niche he is. But he was, you know, arguably a top 10 player in the game this year, could still be. But um, but yeah, he's over the last 12 games, uh, he's been struggling and he is getting a slightly alarming uh, along with a freeze over. And yeah, unfortunate. Yeah, that unfortunate, but um, still probably a hit of mine or one of the, one of the better hits of mine. Has to be. Yeah, absolutely. Has to be. So, so yeah, that does it for players to highlight. Now we will get into a preview of the weekend ahead um, that uh, I will be looking at the series to watch. Daniel will be looking at the day by day pitching matchups. And for me, I have three series that I am particularly looking at, although I think any series with a playoff contender is kind of a series to watch. Yeah. But uh, 
as far as the three series I'm looking at, we got D-backs Cubs once again. Uh, this was featured in the last preview of the weekend ahead because they're playing so close um, together. But that this one will be in Arizona on the West Coast uh, between yeah the Diamondbacks and Cubs. Diamondbacks are fighting for their wild card spot. Cubs want to maintain where they're at in the playoffs and potentially even uh, go closer to the Brewers. So that is definitely something to watch. Along with that, we have the Mariners and Dodgers. Uh, Mariners are kind of hanging on to the their spot in the American League playoff picture by a thread. Although the you know Blue Jays have made sure that they're staying in that playoff race. Yeah, they're they're actually a game and a half up on the on the Blue Jays, but the Mariners do have a lot of uh, stakes to maintain their playoff spot and uh, and face off against these Dodgers, who are going to provide a tough test to them. And then the premier series to watch, a series that everyone should have their eyes on and maybe didn't predict they should have their eyes <laughs> on this series at the beginning of the year, uh, especially this late in the year. But uh, it's the Rays and the Orioles. It's at That's Camden an Yards. intense series. It is an intense series. It is a four-game series. It started yesterday where the Rays won, and now they are only one game back of the of the Orioles uh, who have been in control for a while now, but it is a four game series at Camden yards, a potential future playoff series. Uh, so if you need more incentive to watch this, yeah, it's going to be wonderful. I'm definitely going to have my eyes on it and I can't wait to watch more of this series. What do you have for the day by day pitching matchups? Yeah. The Rays won a good one last night. It was four to three. Uh, Luke Rayleigh hit a go ahead home run. And I believe the seventh inning, Pete Fairbanks was like unstoppable uh, out of that bullpen in the ninth inning. It was a lot of fun uh, tonight for pitching matchups on Friday. Uh, Garrett Cole and Johan Oviedo will be facing each other in Yankees pirates. That series at PNC park. Um, Bryce elder will be facing the uh, Marlins for the NL East champion, Atlanta Braves. Uh, that one is in Miami. Uh, Zach Eflin and Jack Flaherty uh, will be facing each other in Rays Orioles tonight. Uh, Brian Bayo and Jose Barrios will be facing each other in Red Sox Blue Jays at Rogers Center. Hunter Green will be facing the uh, Mets for the Reds at City Field. John Gray and Lucas Giolito will face each other in uh, Rangers Guardians. That's a 2021 classic, probably. Um, Bailey Ober, who is one of my favorites, will be going for the Twins against the White Sox at Gated Radio. Christian Javier and Zach Granke will be going against each other in Astros Royals. That is in KC. Um, you will have Aaron Nola going for the Phillies against the Cardinals in St. Louis. Logan Webb will be going for the Giants against the Rockies at Coors. Um, Tarek Skubal will be facing the Ti- will be facing the Angels for the Tigers. Um, that will be in Anaheim. Justin Steele and Brandon Fodd will face each other in Cubs Diamondbacks. And this matchup of the night comes from Dodgers and Mariners. It is Bobby Miller versus George Kirby. Yeah, that's uh yeah. I mean, talk about young te- young pitching talent. That is uh mm-hmm. the cream of the crop right there. Yeah, a couple of young righties there. It will uh, be on funny Saturday, to see Chris Sa- Sorry, but it will be funny no, to see good. Kirby throw like 115 pitches. Uh <laughs> after after that whole debacle mm-hmm. that media debacle oh, yeah. earlier he had to pitch a complete game shutout yeah and he still and he still comes out he, he, he like he throws an immaculate inning in the ninth he's like yeah i really didn't want to be out there actually <laughs> yeah. I, I thought someone could have done better on saturday you will have chris sale 
going for the Red Sox against Chris. You have no idea what pitch I'm about to throw next. Bassett for the Blue Jays. <laughs> um, Chris Bassett's one of my new favorite pitchers after seeing his pitch arsenal. Mason Miller, who has really good stuff, will be going for the A's against the Padres in Oakland. Uh, Dane Dunning and Tanner Bybee will face each other in Rangers Guardians in Cleveland. Uh, you will have Andrew Abbott, fa- or you have Cole Reagan's facing the Astros for the Royals in Kansas City. Andrew Abbott will be going for the Reds against the Mets. Um, you will have Pablo Lopez going for the Twins against the White Sox. Corbin Burns going for the Brewers against the Nationals in Milwaukee. Ranger Suarez and Miles Michaelis will face each other in Phillies Cardinals in St. Louis. Uh, <laughs> we have a classic don't throw it above 91 miles per hour matchup in uh, Arizona. It is Kyle Hendricks versus Zach Davies. <laughs> uh Sawyer Gibson Long, who looked good in his last outing for the Tigers, I swear that's a real guy, will be facing the Angels. I promise you that's a real guy. Uh, Clayton Kershaw and Bryce Miller will face each other in Dodgers and Mariners. And matchup of the night, again, or not again, but it's going to come from Rays Orioles. It is Glass now versus Grayson Rodriguez. Yeah, Sawyer Gibson Long. He was, yeah, he was on my Phillies Tigers square for Immaculate Grid today. He was, uh, is he actually? No, no, he was, no. <laughs> I was about to say he won he won he won 31 games in the 1902 season. Um <laughs> no, back when he, I back swear when he that played. is a real guy. He actually I think he made his major league debut his last time out and he like looked pretty good. He pitched 5 innings, struck out 5, uh didn't walk anyone, allowed two earned runs on four hits. Yeah, he just sounds yeah. like one of those one of those guys where you like you look it's back like, at It's like it's like yeah, it, it, that's that's his full name but it's not listed on his baseball reference page. Yeah, it's like oh he had, yeah. he had fifteen. It's like bullet, his name is like his name is like Bullet Long, but his real name is Sawyer Gibson. Yeah, it's like wow he he really got he really got fifteen WAR in nineteen oh in nineteen oh five. That's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. No. So anyway, you should you should watch Sawyer Gibson Long on on Saturday. Um, yeah. On Sunday to finish out the weekend, uh, Zach Latell and Dean Creamer will face each other in Rays Orioles. Zach Latell is on the Rays now. Uh, noted for later um yeah carlos rodon will be facing the uh pirates for the yankees in pittsburgh punjin ryu will be, will be facing the red Sox for the blue jays brandon williamson and jose quintana will face each other in reds mets at city field gavin williams will be facing the rangers for the guardians uh in cleveland um you will have charlie morton and jesus lazardo facing each other in braves marlins Framber Valdez will be facing the Royals for the Astros. Um, Brandon Woodruff, who's been really awesome in his last few outings, will be facing the Nationals for the Brewers in Milwaukee. Um, Taiwan Walker will be facing the Cardinals for the Phillies. Um, you will have Logan Gilbert facing the uh, Dodgers for the Mariners. An interesting Sunday night matchup in Arizona. Uh, Jordan Wicks versus Ryan Nelson, a couple of young guys in Cubs, Diamondbacks. And matchup of the afternoon comes from Twins, White Sox. It is Sonny Gray versus Dylan Cease. Ooh, potentially back-to-back like Cy Young runner-ups. Yeah. It's very possible. Yep. Very, very possible. Probably on track to happen. Um, Possibly. Yeah, and, and it's very cool that uh, the Diamondbacks are getting some some SMB yeah. action. In Arizona, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Excited about that. Um, Probably could right, have been well, Rays Orioles, but you know what? No, no complaints over that series. Yeah, and I mean, I guess no one was expecting Diamondbacks Cubs to be that yeah. premier game to watch, 
But also, yeah, many, the Rays and Orioles were not projected to be. They're going to be on Sunday. Yeah, Tigers Angels. That's a real riveting matchup. Padres A is another one, and then Dodgers Mariners. That's that. That'll be the only four o'clock game I'm watching. Yeah, if if it were April, we'd be like, yeah, why isn't Padres Angels like <laughs> the it's Sunday Padre, night baseball? No, 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 it's it's Padres A's. Oh, Padres A. Okay. Yeah, and then Tigers Angels. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can understand why those aren't on Sunday night baseball. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. That with with all that being said. Um, there was a lot said in this episode, but yes. that will do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio. We hope you enjoyed this one. Um, maybe maybe you didn't enjoy the dialogue, but I hope you enjoyed. Um, maybe, maybe you didn't enjoy the points we made, but I hope you enjoyed the entertainment of it all. Uh, if you are interested in in uh checking out more content, you know, subscribe on YouTube. You know, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just you know, go to the YouTube channel, subscribe to it, subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and Spotify feeds. Um, check out all the content we have. You know, this is episode 270. We have so much that we've already done, um, including a baseball history series. There's that playlist on YouTube. We have 12 guest interviews. Um, most recently with Chris Catillo before the Heim Bloom firing, you get to hear pretty much, you know, he's Chris Catillo has been there for the entire Bloom era. Uh, you know, with Mass Live as a Red Sox beat reporter, he was there for part of the Dombrowski era. So he really has a good perspective on what the Red Sox organization is about. And he has his own criticisms about ownership, along with criticisms on Heim Bloom, if, if we're being honest, too. But uh, go check out that interview for a little bit of retrospect on what this era has been. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that's involved in the guest interview playlist on our YouTube channel. Along with that, uh, follow us on social media. Follow me on Twitter, Akris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Kern. And follow the show on Instagram at Above Replacement Radio for all the show needs. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this one. And we hope to see you next time where we will be talking all the happenings in Major League Baseball once again. See you then. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over. <laughs>